days ago, I was putting my boys to bed, and one of my sons went up to the little fish tank that we have in our room. Uh, their grandparents bought them a fish, and a fish tank came home with them from a visit to their grandparents the other day. One of my sons, in horror, reached into the fish tank to reveal a Lego shark. And in horror, he opened the Lego shark's mouth to find the fish in it. And it was dead. And he looked at my brother, or his brother, in horror and said, what did you do? My other son, starting to realize that he had actually killed his fish, was just playing Legos and had the shark eat the fish. And Lego shark won that battle. My other son was devastated. How could you do this? But here's what didn't happen after that scenario that deeply concerned my wife and I, by the way. <laughs> we didn't call the cops. There were no charges laid. There will be no prison sentence. Thank you, Jesus, for my little son. Why is that? Well, it's because it's a fish. And there's something intrinsically more valuable about human life. And that's where we're spending our time this morning. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're in the midst of a sermon series this summer on the Ten Commandments. We are at the Sixth Commandment. It is found in Exodus 20, and it is verse 13. It's quite short. Here's what it says. You shall not murder. It's two words in the original language, but no murder. You shall not murder. If you, if you were maybe one of those children who memorized the Ten Commandments and memorized them in the King James Version, you'll know it as this, thou shalt not kill. Now, I know some of you really, really love the King James translation of the Bible, but it's actually not very accurate. It's not the most accurate word to say, thou shalt not kill. You shall not murder is, is more accurate for this reason. The word in the original language is not a word used in the Bible to describe killing in war or capital punishment. Now, admirable as pacifism is, the sixth commandment is not advocating for no killing of any kind. That argument in Scripture can certainly be built out, sure, but, but there are eight different words for killing in Hebrew, the original language of these Old Testament scriptures, and the word here is never used in, um, in the scriptures for the legal system or the military. Neither is this word for killing used in regards to hunting. What is forbidden is the unlawful killing of human beings. Therefore, the more accurate English translation would be, you shall not murder. The sixth commandment forbids the unauthorized taking of human life and also covers causing human death through manslaughter because of care, carelessness or negligence, drunk driving. You are liable for that. You are responsible for that. Not, not um, being careless and setting up scaffolding and someone falls from it in a construction site. There's, there's a, you're complicit in that. That is also included here, but primarily it speaks to killing with malice. That is the sixth commandment. 
So we've got a lot of work to do this morning to, to try and understand this well. And maybe at first glance you're thinking, oh, a commandment that I keep, awesome. Wait for point number two, okay? It's coming. This is more applicable than you might think, and perhaps as we look at it, it's made perhaps one of the most convicting, applicable commandments for us all. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, right, in the, right out of the gates in the Scriptures, Genesis 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter in the Bible, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness goes on to say, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Imago Dei is, is the phrase used to describe what it means to be made in the image of God. This is significant. This is where we have to start when we talk about the sixth commandment. Imago Dei is the, is the understanding that we as humankind are made in the image of God and are unique in dignity, value, and worth. Humanity is, in other words, the pinnacle of God's creation. Image breaking, therefore, is looking at people we're supposed to be loving and bringing harm to them. This command, not to take life, speaks of the love of God and the value He places on us. If human life wasn't precious to God, then this commandment wouldn't exist. So, here we go. Here we are. This is what we're saying so far. God is the creator. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who takes life. We are not to take life. See, when we step in and decide to take life, we're putting ourselves on the throne, on God's throne, in the place of God. And, and that's why murder is so horrific. There are all kinds of sins, but there is an extreme severity and finality to murder. Right after God sent the flood because humanity had become so, so crooked, after the flood, God said to Noah to, to kind of bring a safeguard to humanity, said, and for your lifeblood, Genesis 9, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This means that every person or animal, it's talking about beasts, every person or animal that takes a human life will be held accountable by God, should be held accountable in government, and we see that worked out in Scripture, but ultimately will also be held accountable by God. Maybe all dogs don't go to heaven, eh? They'll all be held accountable to murder another human being is to murder what is most like God. And therefore, to murder is actually, more than anything, an attack on God himself. To murder is an assassination of the image of God. To murder is an assassination of the image of God. Not only that, people were created to glorify God. We believe this to be true. 
God created us in his image, and as we reflect his image, as he calls us to live, he gets glory. But here's the thing. People were created to glorify God, and so to kill someone made in his image, to live for his glory then also is to rob God of his due. You're taking the life of someone who is created to bring glory to God, and you're cutting that down. Here's where we're going to go with this sixth commandment this morning. We're going to look at our murderous culture, our murderous hearts, secondly, and third, our murdered Savior. It's a good thing that last Sunday was family Sunday, hey? Kids were in last week. It's getting heavy in here. Let's look at the first one, our murderous culture. Now, the Ten Commandments, sometimes referred to... uh, Within the Ten Commandments, they're looked at as there's these two tables of the law. The first four are in reference to our relationship with God, and the second table is our relationships, uh, the following six are relationship with, relationships with one another. Our duty to God in the first four commandments always governs our duty to one another in the last six commandments. So we've kind of made that transition last week as we talked about honoring father and mother. We made the transition from the first table of the law to the second table. But the first table, our relationship with God, always informs our relationships with one another. Said another way, our love for neighbor is subject to our love for God. So if you take away the first table... And just try and use the Ten Commandments as a way, like the, the, the latter six commandments, as a way to govern how we treat one another, then everything that follows can be redefined and renegotiated because that relationship with God is, is severed. The frame of reference is no longer transcendent but temporal, and human life has no claim to human dignity other than what we humans choose to ascribe to it. Here's the problem. God has been taken out of the equation in our culture today. So here's what that means. The transcendence has turned to temporal. What was stated by God and understood that all human life matters because God said so, when God is taken out of the equation, now it's temporal. Some life matters. Or some people say all life matters. But then those same people later say some life matters. Look, there are only two possibilities about human life. Either all human beings have value or some human beings have value. So which do you believe is true and why? Do you believe that the lives of some human beings are valuable because some human beings say they are? Or do you believe that all human beings are valuable because some people say they are? Or do you believe that all human beings are valuable because something or someone outside of ourselves has determined them to be so. See, some human beings determining that all life is valuable or determining some life is valuable is relative. Those same human beings that determine one today will determine the other tomorrow. And in the West, the secularist worldview has determined that some of life is valuable. In Christianity... We've always understood, we've always viewed it this way. All of life is viewed as valuable. The transcendence of God, the imago Dei that we've, we've started with right out of the gates. 
But because of this cultural divide, because of this difference in view, we're, we're seeing it played out in, in, in pretty, pretty tragic ways. You know, the late Pope John Paul II referred to the 20th, 20th century as a culture of death. Death is everywhere. Shootings and stabbings in cities, shootings in schools, rebel militant groups, violent governments, suicide bombers. But not only that, one study revealed that by the time the average child finishes elementary school, they will have watched 8,000 murders and 100,000 acts of violence on screens. Kids crave watching violence. People crave watching violence because of our violent, crooked hearts. Shooting games are super popular. Like, there are no, like, Mother Teresa games where, like, you push the A button on the joystick or whatever it, controller to, like, feed a sick, like a, a starving person, or to bandage a wound, right? There's no like Martin Luther King Jr. game where you push for, you know, nonviolent resistant march, push, you know, start. And it's like, does, we don't play those games. We play the one where you point a gun at somebody and blow their brains out. Wesley, uh, uh, before I get there, Here's an interesting fact about the 20th century. With all the technological advancement that came along in the 20th century, included in that was the ability to murder on massive scale. It's said that four individuals are ultimately blamed and responsible for 175 million deaths in the 20th century. With all of our technological advancement, what was also figured out in the 20th century was how to kill in mass. Those four individuals are Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. To a man, this shows where the denial of the sanctity of human life leads. Wesley Smith, in his book, Culture of Death, wrote a small but influential group of philosophers and healthcare policymakers actively seek to persuade our culture that killing is beneficent, suicide is rational, natural death is undignified, and caring properly and compassionately for people who are elderly, prematurely born, disabled, despairing, or dying is a burden that wastes emotional and financial resources. This kind of thinking and influencing is a direct assault on Imago Dei. I'm going to talk about a couple subjects here that are um, wildly unpopular um, to do so, at least from the stance that I will share from. But I, I don't mean to do it to bring anyone despair or to feel like they're the outsider in the room. Okay, what we're going to talk about here for a few minutes is, is simply uh, an epidemic that exists societally because I think we've chosen to view some lives as more important than others, that some life is, is worthy of dignity and others aren't. Now, these are, these are big issues, and, and they work themselves out in the lives of individuals, and if you find yourself to be one of these individuals, uh, listen, this isn't an indictment on you. I, I'm not going to speak to hopelessness here, that there's no hope for you. 
that you are worse than anyone in the room. That's not my view. I get up on the stage every Sunday saying, I'm the worst of sinners. What do I have to tell this group of saints? Okay, like, so that's not my heart, but I want to talk about an issue and it will convict some of us. Later in the sermon, don't worry, I'm going to convict everybody. Okay. According to the World Health Organization, 40 to 50 million abortions take place every year. That's almost five holocausts. Listen, abortion is the taking of human life theologically. Theologically, we understand that life begins at conception. We believe that. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Goes on in verse 16 to say, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What's being said here is from conception, life existed. A future was in store from God's perspective. Even before conception, God had that life mapped out. In conception, in the womb, as that fetus grows, God was making plans. Human life had begun. Psalm 51 verse 5 said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What's being said there is right from conception, that sinful nature, at conception, the moral, spiritual component of our humanness is present right from the get-go. At conception, a new DNA strand is created that is distinct from moms and dads. It's a new human life. At eight weeks in the womb, a baby feels and reacts to pain and has all of the organs necessary to support life, yet it is legal to end that life. Interestingly enough, if, if a pregnant woman is assaulted or killed, and it, it's a double homicide or, or um, involuntary manslaughter for someone who might kill a pregnant woman in a car accident. See, the, the law doesn't have even the, the, the proper sense of, of, of this issue. And yet here's something I want to say at the same time. The, the, both of these things have to always come out of my mouth and should come out of all of our mouths as we talk about these issues. Abortion is wrong. It's the taking of a life. And at the same time, if we're ever going to declare that, we have to say, and we will help. We will serve any woman anywhere give them anything that they might possibly need. We have to say both at the same time. Do not say the one, murder, right? This is murder, this is, abortion is wrong, and not reach out a helping hand in any possible way for a woman in need. I know of, of youth centers in this community that walk with teenagers, and then they get pregnant, and they're able to just walk alongside of them in relationship, and they spare these girls from aborting children because they think, oh, there's someone to help me with this. Christians need to be in those roles. We cannot say abortion is wrong and not be in those roles. Far too often, placards are made and no help is given. And I'm ashamed of that. I want no part of that. But we will not neglect the truth in the scriptures that says from conception it's life. 
We're going to continue to say that, but we also at the same time need to buckle down and say, oh, that we might help vulnerable women in need. I think we need to pray as church that abortion would end somehow. We need to repent of our part in it for either our indifference or our involvement in it. See, if we're not saying abortion is wrong and at the same time saying we're here to help, I don't think we understand the gospel. You know what I mean? The gospel's for broken people. Jesus would approach people and say, your sins are forgiven, now go and sin no more. It's, it's a both and in the gospel. Look, I don't want to riddle anyone with guilt this morning over this specific issue, like it's all we're talking about when we look at the sixth commandment. But I want to talk about it because it is an epidemic in our day. A few years ago, my wife Emily and I had, um, she used to work at a youth center and we, really, we got to know one young woman really well, and she got pregnant, and she asked if she could come and live with us at that time, which for us seemed like a stretch. Um, we're homebodies, we like our space, and so just selfishly, we were like, what? Right, but, but we just, okay, like we, we did that. We had her into our home for months, and she came from a really broken home, like really broken home. And I don't know how great of examples Emily and I were, but I know we were some form of examples to her. She saw us with our, our oldest son, Boston, was just a little guy then. She was able to watch what parenting was supposed to look like. She had never seen what it was supposed to look like. And she was able to have her baby. She was able to keep her baby, which was amazing. And, and we still have a relationship. She's family to us. And... and and I think that that's so, so critical. So those kinds of relations help us say, yes, this is wrong, but they also help us empathize with the situations where it's pursued. Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, um, said, talked about the sanctity of human life from the get-go, from the birth of Christianity, the sanctity of human life existed. It was part of what caused Christianity, in fact, to thrive in Rome in the first centuries. Infanticide was a terrible problem at the time in killing females. Baby girls were born and they would discard them. Rodney Stark wrote, we've unearthed sewers clogged with the bones of newborn girls from the first centuries in Rome. But he went on to say, but Christians prohibited this. From the very beginnings of Christianity, um, the sanctity of human life was so held up that women especially were drawn to Christianity because it was safe. Because female babies mattered to Christians. And so we want to be the kind of place that says, look, all life matters. We want to be the kind of people that declare all life matters. The movie The Dropbox was made in, in 2009. It's about a Korean pastor named Lee Jong-rak. It's a documentary. And he built a wooden dropbox on the outer wall of his home. And it wasn't there designated to collect clothes or food or, to or toys, but it was designed to collect unwanted babies. Several children, I think over 600 now, um, 
many with deformities and disabilities were placed in the drop box by, by parents who, who otherwise would have discarded their child. The documentary profiles the work of this man with little education and no public notoriety, trying his best to care for the voiceless and the defenseless. Another, another issue that has taken uh, rise rapidly in Canada is euthanasia. Going back a little ways in April 2001, like why not talk about all the hot, hot button issues, right? In April 2001, the Netherlands became the first century to legalize euthanasia through doctor-assisted suicide. What's fascinating about this is that during the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch doctors refused to obey orders by the Nazis to let elderly or terminally ill patients die without further treatment. Malcolm Mutteridge wrote, it only took one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. What a radical departure for a nation in 50 years. In Canada, in our own nation, over 2,100 medical-assisted deaths have ha happened in the first year and a half since federal legislation took place in June 2016. Listen, God alone is the Lord of life, and He alone has the right to determine when it is time for someone to die. The advocacy uh, group, organization, nonprofit that advocates for, for euthanasia in our country is called Dying with Dignity. And what, what they're implying is that a dignified death is a death on our terms and a death that lacks suffering, that bypasses suffering. It implies that a natural death is undignified. Not only that, it doesn't just imply, they state, essentially, that suffering is meaningless, right? That, that, that you should be able to control every aspect of your lives, even the point when, you're suffer, when, 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 you're, when living will become great suffering, you should be able to bypass that. Just a few weeks ago, a couple in our church um, the young woman was at the, the, the couple were at the bedside of her mother. She gave her life to Jesus at 9 a.m. in her hospital bed, and at noon she had passed away. I don't agree. We're not supposed to bypass our suffering. When I look at my life, my sufferings have been the fire that has refined me. Think of the deathbed conversions that have taken place because people who want to control their own destinies realize that they're in the hands of God. So many people learn so much through their hardship. God gives life. God takes it away. Dionysius in the third century Rome talked about an epidemic that uh, that, had, that hit Rome in the third century, possibly it was smallpox, and its first hit just, just wiped out like a third of the city. Dionysus wrote, at the first onset of the disease, the heathen, which is unbeliever, the unbelievers pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. 
but do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. This same writer, Dionysus, this historian, also wrote a tribute to the heroic nursing efforts of local Christians, many of whom lost their lives while caring for the others. Listen to the distinction. Listen to what it looks like when imago Dei is in effect, dignity to all human life. It says of the early church, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparking them, uh, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal to martyrdom. Do you see what's so distinct about Christianity when it comes to the sixth commandment? Is all life matters so much that at great personal risk, we will reach out to bless and nurture life in others. See, the sixth commandment is a sin forbidden. You shall not murder. But a positive duty is assumed. We call this the two-sided rule in interpretation, where something negative is stated, don't do this. A positive is inferred. Therefore, it means to do this. So in this sense, so when it says you shouldn't murder, it also means that you should radically love others, neighbors, and even enemies. See, Christians have always been at the forefront of caring for and advocating for the vulnerable, for those deemed disposable by the worldviews of others, because we, like God, view all human life as precious, valuable, and sacred, whether it's the unborn, helpless little ones, the elderly and infirmed, or the diseased and the disabled, not to be discarded, but preserved, because we're all made in the image of God. That's why Martin Luther described the sixth commandment this way. This commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or, though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could have clothed him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in similar peril and you do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It would do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. What he's saying here is precisely what happens in the parable of the Good Samaritan. This man is beaten on a road, and he's left, and a priest and a Levite, right, these religious leaders go, they see him, and they walk by. In, in, in God's view, they're guilty of, of breaking the sixth commandment. Here's a life in peril, and they pass it by. Meanwhile, a Samaritan, someone that Jews despised, comes along and bandages his wounds, 
gives him transportation to an inn, pays for his medical bills, and doubles back to make sure that that person's okay. See, it's tempting to do nothing in all sorts of circumstances. And listen, we can't do everything, but we have to at least do what we can. When we see someone in need, when we see someone in peril, we're called to love them, pursue them, help them. What's interesting about the sixth commandment is it's, it's this interesting indicator, isn't it? Like murder is the most basic indicator we use in determining whether or not we're a good person or a bad person, right? Well, I haven't murdered anyone, right? And yet, and yet, the teaching of Jesus on this command will actually reveal the opposite to be true. Let's look at our murderous hearts. The reality is that we can be innocent of taking human life and yet still be found guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. How? Well, Jesus reiterated and clarified the sixth commandment in Matthew chapter 5. First, he quotes it and its naturally understood implication. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The rest of the law kind of worked that out, and that's a natural understanding. But then he goes on and clarifies what he's just said. He clarifies the sixth commandment more, showing people that, well, they may have kept the letter of the law, they've failed to keep the spirit of the law. He says in Matthew 5.22, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. On whose authority is Jesus saying these things? His own. I say to you, Everyone who is angry and insulting to someone is liable to hell. Let that sink in. Is that the Jesus that you worship? Goes on in verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is saying, how he's clarifying um, the sixth commandment is this. He's saying, refrain from murder, restrain your anger, be careful in what you say when you're upset, and take the initiative to bring about reconciliation. That, in Jesus' words, is what the sixth commandment is saying. Jesus is saying that murder is merely the symptom. The root problem is anger. It's the heart. When you murder someone, when out of malice kill them, it's out of what's already going on in your heart, such an anger, such a fury, that it leads to a symptom, murder. But the root issue is what's going on in your heart. And that followers of Jesus are to be people who pursue reconciliation aggressively. Let's look at Jesus' words here briefly. To be angry with someone, Jesus says, is to make yourself liable to judgment. This isn't a righteous anger. We have this at times when we see injustice happen and we think, no, that's wrong. But typically, 
um, our, our anger spills over in a way that is, is not just towards injustices, but in t- towards people in horrible ways. If you're angry with someone, Jesus says, you're liable to judgment. If you insult someone, you're liable to the council. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court. He goes on to say, when he talks about insulting his brother, it's this word raka, which really just kind of means empty, like you're a moron. The insult is actually to say someone's an idiot, someone's stupid, someone's a moron. She's an airhead. She's a ditz. He's a blockhead. He's a meathead. Like any of those kinds of, I could go on. Can I? This feels... Uh, goes on to say, you fool. If you say you fool, you're liable to the fires of hell, Jesus says. To call someone a fool is to really just say they're unwise. They have really no spiritual judgment. They don't know what they're talking about. Trevin Wax unpacked what this looks like even more. He said, laugh at someone's hope. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Kill a hope. Kill a future. Kill something of someone themselves. Mock someone's ambition. Tell someone that they'll never amount to anything. Tell your kids that they're good for nothing, stupid, worthless. You will succeed in destroying their lives, even if they continue to live. Do you kill by withholding that which sustains life, love, and attention? There is a striking similarity between physical and verbal violence. They both come from the same source, a hateful heart, and they all kill. See, these thoughts, these words, these actions, they fly in the face of Imago Dei. It's treating someone of intrinsic worth to God as worthless. If you're, not, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're in the room this morning, like, what are you thinking right now? Like, Jesus has just said, if you're angry at someone, you're liable to hell. Have you ever got angry at someone? Like, unjustifiably? Jesus says you're liable to hell. Now, listen, just hearing that, you're probably angry with me or with Jesus, what these verses are saying. But we believe this to be true. What are you going to do with that? Either you will be condemned for that, for that anger, for that ridicule you've put on someone, or you can trust in Jesus who has been condemned in your place. Jesus allowed himself to be murdered for all the murderous thoughts that you have harbored in your heart. Will you turn to him and live? Look, I want to ask some questions to those of you who are followers of Jesus here in the room. The Apostle John reiterates exactly what Jesus said in 1 John 3.15 where he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He's saying precisely what Jesus has said. So Christian, are you a murderer? Do you ever say anything to hurt someone? Do you ever take secret satisfaction in another's misfortune? Do you have an enemy? Do you want to make someone pay for what they've done? Do you ever get so angry that you're out of control? 
We're all guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. I'm in a room full of murderers, and I feel wildly uncomfortable right now. Instead, can you enrich someone else's life instead of cheapening it? How can you lengthen someone's life rather than cut it short? How can you be a life giver, not a life taker? See, Jesus instructs us, if, if, if someone has something against you, drop your worship of God and go reconcile to that person. That's so interesting. Now, certainly, if we're harboring things against others and they're secret things, we have some work to do to reconcile. But if, if you've wronged somebody and you haven't made it right, you're, you're to stop singing and you're to go reconcile. That's what Jesus is saying. Reconciling with a person who has something against you takes precedence over bringing your offerings before God. That's fascinating. Where you have offended someone else, you are to initiate making that right. Really practical questions for us. To whom do you owe this kind of love? What relationships in your life need reconciling? Where have you been moving slowly towards reconciliation instead of quickly as Jesus instructs you, us here? Like, drop your stuff, go make it right. What do you know is troubling someone else, but perhaps you're too afraid to go and talk to them about it? See, respecting life and building peace requires that we take on the ministry of reconciliation. It requires that we be reconciled to God and that we be reconciled to one another. Jesus said a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Like, to not be angry with someone and, and wish them harm, like, that's, that's hard to stop doing, isn't it? To just be pure in heart, that's hard to just do, Right? And yet, here's the thing. It's not enough simply to be emptied of anger. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't demanding more righteous deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. Let me just level with you. If you can't rid your heart of anger towards others, ask God to help you. Oh, how I need his help. Do you need his help this morning to rid your heart of anger? Let's conclude. Our murdered Savior. Listen, when we understand the sixth commandment rightly, we quickly realize that we've broken it time and time again. Jesus' words shatter our confidence in our own righteousness. His standards are even higher than we imagined. You, it says in the Old Testament, if you murder, you'll be held accountable for that bloodshed. Jesus comes and says, if you're even angry with them, it's like you've murdered them. Like, the, his standards are even higher than we imagined. And yet, that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is showing us our murderous hearts so that we're driven to him. He did what we couldn't. He obeyed the sixth commandment perfectly. 
In, 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 in Genesis 9, like I quoted before, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For our murderous thoughts, words, and actions, for our breaking of the sixth commandment, there was a reckoning. And you know what that was for the, for the Christian, for the person who will rely on Christ? That reckoning was this, Jesus dying in our place. And not only did Jesus obey the sixth commandment perfectly, he extended forgiveness to those who murdered him. In Luke 23, it says, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as he hung on the cross, they cast lots for his clothes and hurled insults at him. As all of that was going on, Jesus brought salvation to the one of the criminals hanging beside him, saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus kept the sixth commandment perfectly. Jesus died in our place. Jesus was murdered for us. And even while murdered, he was bringing broken people to himself. He was offering forgiveness to murderers. Jesus didn't take someone else's life. He gave his own. And by trusting in Jesus and all that his death on the cross accomplished, our taking of human life, whether in our hearts or our actions, is forgiven. I want to double back to a couple of the things I talked about, abortion, euthanasia, the, the, the anger in your hearts. And I just want to conclude by, by, by saying this, where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. Look, murderous sin abounds in this room. Grace abounds more. If your heart is heavy this morning, if you're feeling convicted, don't translate that to shame. Bring your burden to the cross of Christ and leave it there. His grace abounds for you. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to conclude by by reading a Ten Commandment corporate confession together. This has been our practice throughout the sermon series, and with every additional command we, we, we hear teaching on, we, we add a, a portion to this confession, meaning by the Tenth Commandment, we're gonna be, you're going to be standing for a really long time. But, but this is an opportunity for us to just kind of settle our hearts. I asked you a thousand questions just for you to consider in your own heart where anger where, where, where some of the breaking of the sixth commandment has evidenced itself in your life. And I just want you to sit there for a few minutes. This is an opportunity where some of that stuff maybe has boiled to the surface for us now to lean into this reading as a confession of those things. And then I want you to notice the great hope that is there towards the end for all of us. Here's what it says. You can read where it says all. Holy and righteous God, we confess that like Isaiah, we are a people of unclean lips. But it is not only unclean lips we possess, we are people with unclean hands and unclean hearts. We have broken your law times without number and we're guilty of pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, and idolatry. 
affect our hearts with the severity of our own, of our sin, and the glory of your righteousness as we now acknowledge our sins in your holy presence. We have had other gods before you. We have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We have sought satisfaction in this world's pleasures rather than in you. We have loved to praise our own glory more than yours. We have taken your name in vain. We have prayed religious prayers to impress others. We have uttered your name countless times without reverence or love. We have listened to others use your name in vain without grieving. We have murdered in our hearts. We have often destroyed our neighbor with our tongues. We have been quick to uncharitably judge others. We have considered revenge when we were sinned against. Oh God, we have sinned against your mercy times without number. We are ashamed to lift up our faces before you. For our iniquities have gone over our heads. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? How shall we answer you? We lay our hands on our mouths. We have no answer to your righteous wrath and just judgment. We have no answer. But God himself has mercifully provided one for us. God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In Christ, who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we are saved. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Amen.